Hello, fellow time travelers. Tony Witt here. Before we start our first Halloween special, there are a few corrections that I need to make. First one is that at one point I say something about King James only reigning for 10 more years as after 1605. Try 20, because his reign actually lasted until 1625. Also, uh, Allison says something about Prime Suspect ending just a few years ago. Well, almost right. The original series of Prime Suspect ended in 2006 in the UK, and in the US, uh, our version ended in 2012 after only a season or two. And finally, Ian does not kill Al-Akir in The Crusaders. Uh, this was something that we were wondering about. And as it turns out, that doesn't happen at all. So, keep your cards and letters, please. In the meantime, enjoy! to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the horrific task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. And welcome also to our first annual Halloween special, which is why I was doing that stupid voice. <laughs> My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally horrific three-person discussion <laughs> panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's not other than the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. Mm -hmm. And finally, we have our novice fan who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the Wise and Witty's Allison Fitch Safran. Hello, Allison. Hello. I have a thematic Hollywood, uh, Halloween witty remark to make. Uh, not off to a good start tonight. Sorry. <laughs> Remove an editing, please. Okay. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Welcome, yeah. everyone, to the Haunted Hospital Ward. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, because we're all dying tonight, unfortunately. <laughs> but that's fine. As we said earlier, this is our first Halloween special, and we're doing it for a number of reasons. One, tis the season. It seems like a good time to do something different, and if you can't be different around Halloween, well, fuck. When can you be? Two... The next novelization on our list is the two-volume novelization of the Daleks' Master Plan, and we're actually saving that one, or most of it, for our so-called Thanksgiving special, which is an episode recorded live at Chicago TARDIS 2017. As of now, <clears throat> we're told we will be there on Saturday, November 25th, from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. How we're going to fit our discussion of two books into that itty-bitty space, I have no idea, but we're going to try it. Good luck. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, you should say, because you won't actually be part of it. In the meantime, well, not the first not time I realized that Dalton's just sending us to die. That's why he's he not is. going. Yeah, exactly, because yeah. he doesn't want to be there for the inevitable. It's okay. I'm, I'm just going to miss this adventure, and then I'll be 
Sure you will. Uh-huh. You'll see us crash and burn, and you'll be like, oh, to hell with y'all. I mean... In the meantime, that means we have some free time to trick and treat you. The trick is, you're not getting a discussion of a target novelization this time. Haha, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, just this once, it's not what it says on the tin, and the cake is indeed a lie. Instead, you're getting a treat. Given that we still miss Ian and Barbara, and we're about to start missing Vicky, yeah. we are going to be discussing one of the Virgin Missing Adventures featuring that crew, namely Gareth Roberts' 1996 original novel, The Plotters, Ooh. Yes, that was even in the script. Yes. Yeah, I know. There's nothing terribly Halloween-y about it. It's just we're doing something different. Before we get to talking about the book, we'd like to tell you about two closely related things. One of these is the existence of our Patreon page, available at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give each month, you will receive a randomly chosen BBC book, not... A Target book. We know you have them all. You have not needed to tell us that for a while People are going to start sending us Target books. That's so if they're going to clean of. house, garage sale? No, send them to Target. I'm Wit. terrified of that. <laughs> but we're giving you a BBC book. Or two, depending on how much you give. As a gift yeah. for supporting us. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. We've also decided to sweeten the pot by giving our Patreon donors a special Patreon-only episode in about two weeks. We're going to be recording a special prelude to our live episode of Chicago TARDIS by discussing only those chapters of the two-volume novelization that cover the one-part episode we've thus far skipped, Mission to the Unknown. In addition to our discussion of John Peel's novelization of that episode, we'll be doing something else that's special. As a thank you to our patrons, new and old. Speaking of which, in addition to our first patron, Bart Lammy. Hello, Bart. Hi, Bart. We'd like to welcome our first white or black guardian level patron, Rick Taylor. Hello, Rick. Hi, Rick. Welcome. Thank you for supporting us, and we hope that you and whoever else would like to support us will enjoy the upcoming episode as a special thank you for everything you do. And now... Let's talk about a story set between the events of the Space Museum and the Chase, which wasn't that long ago for us, uh-uh. the plotters. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Plotters, written by Gareth Roberts, published by Virgin Books in November 1996, number 28 in the Virgin Missing Adventures range. As of this recording, in October of 2017, this title is currently out of print, 287 pages. I have a very, very tenuous connection to Gareth Roberts. Through another well-known fan that I used to talk to named Jim Sankster. He, he and I have fallen out of touch now, but back in the late 90s, when I was an admin for a Yahoo group devoted to the Big Finish audios, Jim and I became friendly via email, and we'd often discuss the show and the books we were reading. He, of course, knew all the authors personally, including Gareth Roberts. Of course. Yeah. And when I told Jim how much I enjoyed uh, Gareth's book, Zamper, Jim told me that Gareth hated that one because he'd had to rush it to get it ready for publication. And then he later told me a few weeks later that he told Gareth how much I liked it. And Gareth said to him, oh, what would he know, darling? He's a colonial. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, okay. Better than a barbarian. Yeah, I suppose so. Well, it's pretty much the same thing, I imagine. But while Gareth Roberts may not have much good to say about me, he probably doesn't even remember he said that. But that's fine. It doesn't matter. It's nice being insulted by somebody so talented. (laughs) There's a lot of good to be said about him, Gareth. 
He started writing professional uh, Doctor Who fiction in the early 90s, contributing first to the Virgin New Adventures, and Zamper was part of that. And then to the Missing Adventures range, where this book hails from. It's actually the last Hartnell book produced for that range, before the rights reverted to the BBC and they started doing their own book series after the TV movie in 1996. That didn't stop Roberts, though. He's one of only two writers to have written for both Virgin and the BBC, including this book, his new adventures, a ninth Doctor novel, a tenth Doctor novel. He's also written audios and comics based on the series. And most impressively, he shares this in common with the writers that we've been reading from the novelizations he has written for the series. Hmm. Oh, nice. The new series. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Well, this one felt more like an episode from the new series than anything else that I've read so it far. It kind of does. And in fact, he was the writer of the Shakespeare Code. The one that we talked about last time. Um, he wrote The Unicorn and the Wasp, which is the Agatha Christie episode. That's a good one. Yeah. He co-wrote Planet of the Dead. He wrote The Lodger, which is the one where um, the Doctor moves in with uh, what's-his-name, who's now a late, late-night talk show host here in America. Um, oh, uh, my James, James, James Corden. Corden. Yeah, yeah yes. James Corden. Um, Cutie. And in fact, that's based on a, a comic strip that uh, Gareth did for Doctor Who magazine, in which the 10th Doctor moves in with Mickey. Yeah, the original is pretty funny. Closing Time, of course, the sequel to that, and The Caretaker. I think he co-wrote that with the Russell T. Davis. It has been said of the plotters that it evokes the Dennis Spooner era, especially the Romans and the Mythmakers. And since we've just come off the joys of reading that book, our Facebook fans thought it would be an appropriate way to celebrate the holiday, even if we are a few days early for the 5th of November. Because remember, remember the 5th of November. How can we forget? How can we forget? How can that be? Us Americans. Yeah, we don't know anything about it. Let me read you. How are you even reading this now? Shouldn't we just be grunting one another in sort of a mundane way? We probably should, but um, let me read the back of the book for you. London, November 1605. The TARDIS materializes at a crucial moment in British history. While Ian and Barbara set off for the Globe Theatre, which they never get to, Vicky accompanies the Doctor on a mysterious mission to the court of King James. What? connects the King's advisor, Robert Cecil, I think it's Cecil, with the sinister hooded figure known only as the Spaniard. Why is the Doctor so anxious to observe the translation of the Bible? And could there be some dastardly plot brewing in the cellars of the Houses of Parliament? Hmm. The answer is yes. As a history teacher, Barbara thinks she knows what to expect when she encounters a man named Guy Fawkes, but she's in for a very unpleasant surprise. Yeah. So, this is our first non-virgin... Uh, shit. This is our first non-target book. It is. Yeah. So, what were your first impressions? Um, let's start with Dalton. Dalton? Um, be, being a filthy American and only aware of the gunpowder plot <laughs> through... Uh, well, I probably read a little bit about it in high school in European history, but... Overall, my knowledge of it comes from V for Vendetta, so uh, I have a tie to that, and so I already was like in a mood to like this book. Ah. Um, but since you and I had kind of spoken how, and you kind of told us that it was going to be similar to Dennis Spooner's novelizations, and that it's a little, it's a little more humorous, it's a little lighter tone, even when dealing with a heavy subject. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I yeah, it was a lot of fun. There were a lot of interesting characters. There were a lot of uh, just comedic relief throughout the whole thing, even when it's dealing with people dying. Yeah. Uh, you know, which happens a lot. Which part. happens a lot. But um, yeah, it was really enjoyable. It was really um, took me a little longer than than some of the other novelizations we've read, but I didn't feel like it was a, like in a bad way. Okay. Um, there was there was a lot going on. And as opposed to some of the other books where it felt like some of the plot lines were rushed, this one really felt like it all worked really well together. Okay, um, terrific. Yeah. All right, Allison? And quite off of that, a lot of the adaptations we've read have had some developed world building in the first third of the book, and then by the final third, it's pretty much plot mechanics and things being pulled together, which is not a criticism necessarily, but this one was much fuller in character development throughout the entire book than the ones that we've read. And it really does feel like something that... It feels like an episode from the newer series, but it also feels more fully developed as a novel than a reverse-engineered adaptation. Yes. 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 In fact, that was the tagline for the Virgin books, that they were too broad and deep for the small screen, which led Kate Orman to call herself a broad too deep for the small screen, (laughs) which I always loved. That's good. And it also has the most loving uh, illustration of Hartnell on the cover that oh, I've seen no. on any of the books. One, you know, the one of Vicky's fine, but it's a really lovely rendering of him. Yeah, there's still photo references. Um, in fact, Dalton, I don't know if you saw you have a copy yeah, of it to, in front I of you, the, yeah. but yeah, it, it's still a photo reference. But it is Alistair Pearson doing one of his beautiful paintings. And in fact, all of the Virgin Missing Adventures have just lovely, lovely artwork. Which is always nice. Um, yeah. When Virgin got the rights to re-release uh, the Vir- uh, the Target novelizations, they also redid a lot of the covers, and those are quite nice too. But they're very hard to get hold of. Yeah, and they're very rare. Um, this book also is relatively rare. It's hard to find it. But so. It's also one of the few books that have, have an author's note at the very beginning. Yes, yeah. I love an author's note. Yeah. And this author's note basically tells us, if you're looking for historical accuracy, look somewhere else. You're not getting I did here. enjoy right. that. <laughs> this is a work of fiction. <coughs> it is fun. Mm-hmm. Get your head out of your ass. Yeah, yeah, precisely. <laughs> I, I don't think he would have used, well, he didn't use those words, but yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that a, phrase would have been very at home in this book, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, especially with King James running around uh, wow. buggering little boys. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, we got to talk about King James, don't we? <laughs> Good Lord. And yeah. not like one throwaway joke. It's just a pounding drum of it's like the Sandusky episode of Benny Hill or something like that. Dun, 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 oh, dun, yes. dun, 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 Begging your pardon? Consensual. It, no, I'm sorry. Because we talked about raping little boys, and it's like, eh. Yeah. Uh, well, there well, was understanding, and there was... I'm talking about his pursuit of Vicky in the guise oh, of Victor. Oh, 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 oh. I'm not talking about Hay. I'm not talking about Hay, who was said oh. to be nearly 20 years old. That's true. That's true. This is much more the sort of Barbara being chased around the bed by mm. Nero type of thing, which is exactly what it was meant to yeah. be. It's yeah. explicitly said that Vicky is thought to be a boy who is 12 or 13, whereas Hay is supposed to be 18 or 19. That's true. That's true. 
Yeah, even taking into account the differing, uh, how would you say that? The differing cultural expectations. Yeah, from, social norms of the time yeah. were a little more. Yeah. I mean, given that the legal age of marriage was probably 12 or 13 for most girls at the time. Yeah. I actually don't know. That's something that would be worth looking into. But. It was not one or two throwaway gags. There, mm. there are a lot of kind of horrifically loving descriptions of... Now that he's dressed up and looks as sweet as a sugar plum or a sugared fig right. and things like that as she's leered at by various personages. But we'll get back there. It's, yeah. But it's, it's not a subtle theme. No. No, it's not. It's not. And it's not meant to be homophobic because uh, Gareth Roberts himself is openly gay. So there is that. We know that it's not from a place of homophobia, which no. is I wonder nice. about that. <clears throat> yeah, it's really nice to know that from the start, isn't it? Because you're like, oh, thank God. Yes, I actually do feel relieved. Yeah. No, it's yeah. it's totally played for laughs in, the, in, like you said, kind of the way the, the Nero thing was. It's like, this is never going to happen. Right. Let's watch it not happen and see exactly. how funny we can make not happen, having it not happen be. Right. And still um, unpack the discomfort that comes with it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> which is not done in the Romans. No. No. No, but Romans is also about adults, and I found this much darker. Yeah. Way. Well, the whole thing is dark. I mean, it's it's humor. It's meant to be humor, <laughs> but it's still very, very dark humor in its own way. Yeah. Yeah, so I could see that. I mean, you're not going to get out of that, though. No. When you're talking about blowing up Parliament, you're no, not going to no. get out of being a little, a little dark. Yeah, exactly. So where should we start? Should we start there? With the, uh, because I told myself I was going to not start there. Okay. Well, we can start well, elsewhere I, I, and come it, back. I, I see. Didn't you say that he was trying to write sort of a cotton style story yeah, here? Yeah, he is. He is. But uh, it would not have worked if it had, he tried to use Cotton's exact brand of humor. It just yeah. would have come off as kind of cloying. So I, I thought there was some really delightful humor in this book, and his mood of humor was my favorite since Cotton oh, that yeah. we've read. And so, like so many that we've read, the, the other elements of it were so disappointing because I was enjoying the positive elements of it oh, okay. so much. I, I loved the translation portion of the, <laughs> the bickering translators and you know, the grad school yes. education finally starts to pay off. The Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, of the, what do they, they call it? The gentle craft. Yes, yes. I loved they yes. just kept referring to cobbling as the gentle craft. Yes. The gentle craft. Like, okay, guys. There are yeah. a couple of double acts in this book, and that's another yeah. another writer that he's mirroring um, who we have not encountered yet named Robert Holmes. So he's doing a later writer's bit as well. But those double acts are amazing. Yeah. I really enjoyed the opening scene setting of the the court of James in London when he's arrived in town early to learn his lines and like us is procrastinates towards the end <laughs> to completing his homework but uh, I thought it was a, there was a, a long and I thought effective description of him um, you know, holding this party when people are looking at him to see whether or not they should laugh or groan or be interested and mm. that's a great portrayal of a the most uptight, raucous party you've ever seen, where people are <laughs> pretending to completely cut yes. loose and have a good time, but everyone is on pins and needles about how they're supposed to behave. I thought that was a really nice oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. scene center. What did you think of how he portrayed King James? What did I think of it? <clears throat> this is the only portrayal of King James I've ever seen, to be honest. Yeah. So I did some reading up on him and found that 
this is probably pretty sympathetic to James. Um, James was probably not quite as on board with the Catholics as he's made out to be here, but he was still more tolerant of them Mm. than previous monarchs had been, and certainly more so than what was coming. But, um, yeah, it worked pretty well for me. Um, how about... How about... I thought it was wonderfully sniveling. I I liked the... I liked the characterization of his sort of pissiness overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since he's not meant to be a young man. At this point, James is 38. Yeah. And this is about, uh, let's see, I think James is going to be on the throne for maybe five more years, possibly ten. I can't remember. I I meant to look it up, and I know that there is going to be our friend, our friend on... on uh, SoundCloud, who fact check us? It's okay. We 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 don't things. say we know everything. So <laughs> wait, is there one one friend who always fact checks? Yes, there oh. is. There is. He wished you a happy birthday, by the way. Oh, that's very said, nice. I said I would carry. I would pass it along. So I have done so. Well, I yes. will say I don't know if this is the same friend that you're talking about, but uh, apparently there's a comment a few weeks ago that the term shamefacedness uh, seeming so religious to me was due to my terminal Americanism. I'm. Uh, Paraphrasing a bit there, and okay. I had never I was saying I had never seen or heard it outside of this, you know, sort of religious gender policing context, and it was actually used in this book. Huh? So I stood corrected at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, it was used in this book in a completely non-gendered setting. A guard was embarrassed and uh, oh, yeah. said to be shamefaced. <clears throat> shamefaced, <clears throat> exactly. So humor, definitely humor. Uh, what about the characters? Because it's been a while since we've seen Ian and Babs. It's kind of nice to see them again. It's nice to have them back, honestly. Um, I don't know if that's because I haven't had time to warm up to Steven. And, you know, Vicky just left, but... There's not a lot of Steven to warm up to. No, but, like, as opposed to Ian and Barbara, who I've... This is, what, the 19th story, so we've read a good... Yeah. Every book I've read pretty much has had them in it. So I got used to their dynamic with the doctor and the other companions mm-hmm. and how they would be used in the story. Um, I guess that's my question. How well is he reproducing that dynamic? Um, I think it does a pretty good job of it. Um, I feel like they kind of slip back into their same roles in a way. You know, mm-hmm. he, uh, Ian's kind of the. The man's man, I guess. Yeah. Um, Barbara's a little more cerebral, a little more thoughtful, a little more trying to figure things out. Um, Vicky, of course, is just... <laughs> but she does have more characterization here than probably no, we've she, ever seen. No, she does. And, and um, I'm kind of glad that in the beginning when the doctor sends Ian and Barbara away, he's like, you're coming with me. We're going to go have fun. Like, don't worry. <laughs> Yes. Like, that was all just to get them out of my hair. Yes. Like, it, it kind of shows the side of, of the doctor's feelings toward Vicky as being a little more um, along the lines of how he felt about Susan. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of couples them together that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, what yeah. What we've seen in the previous novels is Vicky idolizing the doctor, not so much sort of being sycophantic <clears throat> to his face, but trying to imitate his, you know, like, like to say, uh, she tries to learn. She's trying to learn how to do sick burns, yeah. and this is the first time we've seen a more fleshing out of that relationship where she thinks so highly of him, idolizes him so much, and she is so angry yeah. at him. 
that he's misled her about what's going to happen. But he's very casual about her being, you know, dressed as a boy and chased by a pedophile. (laughs) Yeah, well, what can you do? You'll probably be fine. And she's angry he's not worried. She's angry that he lied. She steals the key. And then there's just, you know, the sinking feeling that she's really blown the whole thing up. And it's a much... Much more interesting, more fleshed out portrayal of that relationship than we've seen before. Yeah. And what's really nice about it is that it mirrors Hartnell's relationship with Maureen O'Brien quite well. Because, I mean, you've seen it in the few episodes that we've seen of them. They had a much more warm on-screen relationship than we've ever seen depicted in the books. Yeah. This captures that. That I think Roberts is really capturing all the nuance of it, including the negatives. This is the this is the Vicky that, you know, in the Romans went out of the room muttering under her breath about somebody being senile. Yeah, we could see that happening. But Vicky and Barbara are entirely seen from the outside in the Romans. Even the one passage that yes. Barbara writes, it's still in the same voice as every other character, and it's the least personal. This is the most we've had in the books that, that I've read of Vicky and Barbara, uh, of their actual experience of being them instead of others observing them. Oh, yeah. Especially Barbara, you know, being, trying to figure out what's going on when she's being knocked out and drugged and then coming to. It's very sensory from her perspective yes. and talks about her hearing her voice scream. There's still shrieking girls all around. But it's not, <laughs> well, but instead of it being kind of like an outside slapstick thing, it's much more... Not sympathetic in terms of pitying them, but much more what would it be like to be them. And normally we just see that from Ian's perspective in the books with um, with Barbara and Ian. Exactly. And in fact, if anything, he is, I thought, the thinnest characterization here of he the main really plot. He is, isn't he? Which is fine because he said such you know good characterization in other novels. It was mm-hmm. good to, to let Vicky and, and Barbara have more to do. This mm-hmm. is the first time, no, the second time in the books I've read that uh, Barbara has actually used her education. And I actually complain before about Steve not using being an astronaut or not being able to in the stories and Barbara not being able to use or not being seen to use her historical information. But I love the part where she she recalls the essay question on the test that she missed about Guy Fawkes (laughs) and the plot. Like, question number two. It's this long essay question. Agree, disagree, analyze this or that. Which would have been so easy to do in so many of the other novelizations, but it hasn't come up before. I thought no, that was no, no, because especially effective. None of the other authors are being paid enough to do that. No, but <laughs> I, I felt like that was very much something like I've had experiences like that where that name rings a bell. Wait, let me think. It was on that thing at that time. Yes. That one. Just and I like, missed the question. Right. Yeah. Uh, and now I'll never forget. Exactly. Exactly. And that lovely moment when she loses consciousness just as she's saying, you're Guy Fox." Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, that's an episode ending. Yeah. <laughs> that's a cliffhanger. Right. Just like, Lemate um, in um, Reign of Terror. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. Oh, the shit's about to go down now. Yeah. And she's just passed out for it. Great. <laughs> I think it's kind of important, I think, to portray even a humorous historical fiction like this is the the endless tension between how much things change and how much things are the same. And she says, she and Ian are walking through London, look at all the threads of our civilization. Yes, it's much different. You can always already see what it's going to become. Yes, there's bad, but look at all these wonderful things. And then they, you know, happen upon the bear baiting. And then they go into the tavern where it's all dirty jokes and ass slapping left and right. (laughs) She 
she knew it was going to be good and bad. She did not realize how good and how bad. Yes. You can't before you actually experience I it. I love that Not that any of us have experienced going back to another right. time. But. I love how it's this book that taught me that the Shakespearean era was the golden age of the dream. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't this like the eternal task of the... Uh, a high school English teacher trying to explain that there are a lot of really funny, dirty jokes in Shakespeare. You're just not getting them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. You'll like this if you understand it. <laughs> if you understood yes. how smutty this was. Right. But that's the problem. As soon as you explain it, the joke's gone. I thought these were quite clear, smutty jokes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. When, uh, quite the, modernized. I mean, it was, the effect was Yeah, good. when the serving wench is coming in for the first time. The serving wench who had, a spoiler alert, turns out to be hay. Yeah, I did not see that coming. I did not either. Nope. Mm -mm. That was pretty amazing. I was kind of confused about that (laughs) and a little annoyed. But oh, really? Why? Because I was just like, how? I don't care what kind of disguise you have. Like, how do you? I don't know. Couldn't have done it on screen because probably not. The same sets of people are not seeing Hay and Sybil and the Spaniard. No. Well, there are some people who are seeing the Spaniard and Hay, but the Spaniard said to be wearing a deep cloak and right. ears only in these very special circumstances, you know, at night in low light. Mm-hmm. It's more the teleporting around London that seemed a little perfect. Yeah. Just a little bit. I enjoyed the idea of it. I was I was a little confused about how it would happen. Yeah. I think, my thing. I think probably if we were to trace his appearances, we might find that there's a problem. I'm not sure. Somewhere. I mean, I... I do feel like I should read this one again for plot mechanics, mm-hmm. um, which speaks well of it. But yeah, it does. At the, the beginning, a big deal is made about how Sybil is late for her shift, and everyone's like, "Oh, you must have gotten you know extra customers out whoring it up." Um, you know, your your other job, right? But they actually do make a, a, a the author does make a point mm-hmm. of the fact that. Sybil and Hay are not in the same place at the same time, obviously, right. but also there's a good gap between when you see them in the book. Exactly. And in fact, Barbara has a line in the later chapter. It's like, that's incredible. How on earth could he do that? Oh, I see. The cloak is reversible. And it's like, right. oh, that covers it. Well, <laughs> and it explains. The passage. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah between the rougher parts. Yeah, the secret and the, passages. Yeah. And also, like, the way he was walking. It's like, oh, yeah. no wonder he walks strange. He's got, like, three costumes I underneath. I read it, reread it. I think it would actually be pretty tight. I mean, it would be like an episode of 24 where you can't possibly do a lot in 24 hours. Exactly. But the individual elements actually do. Hook right, up. right. Yeah. But they do do a lot of what's called um, TV trips calls it lampshade hanging it 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 refers to when something is so obvious in a plot that you just kind of say oh yeah there you go yeah yeah you put the lampshade on it to say just to show you yeah we're we're aware of what's going on yeah um there's a brilliant moment where the doctor says oh well, I thought this episode, I mean, this episode of my life was going yes, to be... Yes, yes, that, yes. Was, that was a was good very good I love good that yeah. line, because it's very much it's very much a Hartnellian line. In fact, there are at least... I love how he writes the Hartnell Doctor. He gets the Hartnell Doctor absolutely right. Yeah. In every particular. Including when the Doctor flubs a line... The way Hartnell would have flubbed a line. Chesterfield. <laughs> Chesterfield. <laughs> calls him Chesterfield for one thing. At first, I thought that was a typo, and I was like, "Wait, no, this is the author just, just like winking at the reader." And he also says something about a plot, and he says it in front of Cecil. Yeah. But he says it in the way that Hartnell would have flubbed a line. 
But it's like oh um, yes, it's stirring the stirring the plot. I mean, stirring the pot. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and it's the sort of intentional flub that you remember. Uh, Dalton was in Keys of Marinus. Yeah, but it wasn't on the page because the novelizer read it as oh that's Cardinal screwing up. And it's like no, it's in the script. Yeah, it's <laughs> they meant did to it be intentionally. That. But but that's one of those things that works both ways. It's like yes. this is a wink at Hartnell's famous on-screen flubs, but it's also mm-hmm. like the doctor saying, I know what you're doing here. I'm trying to, like, wink, wink. Yes. So it's, it works on two levels. There was another really subtle moment where he's first talking to the translators, and there's a moment where they all expect someone to say something. Yeah. And no one does. And then they just yes. move on to the next yes. thing they're going yes. to say, and it's like... That's what they would do whenever Hartnell missed a line. Ah, they would just go on to the next thing. So that's Gareth Roberts looking and saying, that's not Hartnell, the actor, screwing up. That's the first doctor and the way he do. (laughs) I think it works. I think it works, though. It's, It's... It's charming in its own ways. Yeah. It gives them... It gives them character. It's... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. When I was part of the writing group, um, the couple, the, the Hartnell book that we all did together, we would add those little touches too, specifically because it's like, yeah, this is this is the doctor. This yeah. Is the doctor is he just It feels doctor. natural that way. It feel it feels more like it's it's kind of this fully realized version of him. Yeah. Um, you know, all the flubs, all the winks, all the little you know. And the sick burns. That yeah. last one. Yeah. Oh, this place is becoming more of a kindergarten by the day. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. And there's one other. He he says something to Hay about, well, you seem very um, committed to the plot, I would say. And it's this little <laughs> dig at Hay. It's like, you're taking it up the ass, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> you're willing to do that, very aren't you? Very character. <laughs> So I had to Google something during this, and it wasn't yeah. origin, but uh, my grad school education did not teach me about Linda LaPlante. Oh, Or LaPlante. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how I say that. I don't know why they're making such a fuss over Shakespeare, said Vicky. I mean, I know who was good, but he was hardly Linda, Linda LaPlante. LaPlante. Yes. <laughs> the writer of Prime Suspect. Which, which I now was, know. <laughs> which was very popular in Britain in the 1990s. So, yeah, that's that's Robert's probably his own tastes in television bleeding through. Yeah. And saying, yeah, in Vicky's time, Linda LaPlante is going to be more popular than Shakespeare. And you could see that. I mean, that's fine. But it, it, it's also kind of a dated reference because, well, I don't know. British writer, British audiences might know it better than we do. I want to yeah. say that Prime Suspect only wrapped up like two years ago or something. But yeah. Didn't like the last it went on forever. So, yeah. So perhaps American readers would know that too, but yeah, it's a it's a cute little thing. They were constantly doing that in the '90s, and in fact, I'm surprised there's not more of that in this book. Luckily, there isn't. There, uh, yeah, might as well bring this up. There is a BBC book, which I don't really like all that much, in which the Hartnell Doctor. Well, this is the one scene of it I do like. They're in ancient China, I believe, uh, with Ian and Barbara and the Doctor. And Ian and Barbara come along and say, oh, we were, wa- we were watching them practice. They were kung fu fighting. And uh... Ian says it was so exciting. And the Doctor gets a twinkle in his eye and says, and was it a little bit frightening? Hmm? And it's like, oh, for Christ's sake. Why? Why? Why would you do such a thing? Because you can. Because you can. 
Yeah. And as painful as it can be, it does make one laugh. It so. does. Well, it's but, okay. But all the stuff like the doctor faking signs of being ill just before bearing bad news, or the fact that when he's criticized in any way, he gets angry. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's... I always felt like that was... Yeah, it's a put-on. It's totally just like, oh, let me do this to get some sympathy, or to make it seem like I'm more feeble than I am. Yes. Or, you know, it's... <laughs> Yeah, and he's not feeble. No. He he's it's like it's being being passive aggressive myself. That's totally like passive aggressive behavior. I think once you've admitted it, you've lost your powers. You a Virgo passive aggressive? Me Never. a Virgo? Oh my goodness! What? No. How could that be? Yeah. Well. All right. What else? What else? I like. Uh... Vicky's misapprehension of history because this would be so much further back, even uh, for oh, her, yeah. several centuries before, uh, earlier for her than for Barbara and Ian. So she's talking about going to Trafalgar Square to see the pigeons. And, <laughs> and yes. The doctor says, Pigeons and Deeds, the 1605, the Battle of Trafalgar won't be fought for another 200 years. Vicky's confusion increased. I didn't know there had been a battle in Trafalgar Square. Who won? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I know. That's just brilliant. What else? Uh, the doctors... Uh, listeners, will you tell us this? Because I haven't been able to figure it out. I've looked this up online ever since reading these lines. The doctor is referred to as having deep brown eyes like three or four times. Hartnell, to my knowledge, did not have deep brown eyes. He had hazel eyes. I have hazel eyes. He would not look at my eyes and say, oh, they're deep brown. They're like pools of beautiful love. No, no, they're not deep brown. Besides, sometimes they look under some lights like blue. Yeah. So it's like, listeners, you need to tell us that because they're, they keep being referred to as deep brown and it bothers me quite a bit. All right. So anyway, just wanted to put that out there. Uh, what else? I'm just going to fill in any silences with uh, banter from the translator. Please do. Surely there was no fragrance, fragrance sweeter than the wafts of antiquity's wisdom and made especially dulcet in the present circumstances when he was about to deliver the killing blow to his opponent's thesis. <laughs> uh, what, what was that last mistranslation that they did? The head of John... <laughs> the head of John the Baptist was requested in, on a colander oh, instead colander. of in a platter. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, or that there's a balm in Gilead and it's not, not a, a tree hole in a Gilead. Hole in Gilead. Yes. <laughs> and you can see this sort of thing happening. And the fact that they're translating all the fun bits and the naughty bits before they get to the begats. Yes. You know, do the fun stuff first. Get it out of the way. <laughs> exactly. it, it, it reminds me of... Um, of just like work friendships that I've had with people that you spend so much time together that you love yeah. each other, but you love also nitpicking and really giving it to the other person. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. My uh, my office mate, I scared out of his wits this morning when I came into the office, and he was like, "I was just about to snap at you because I thought you were a student," and then I and then I started laughing when I realized it was you. I was like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah, I would have preferred you in snappiness." Uh. The way I first remember hearing about Origen was that he was one of the most prolific writers of his era, and especially early Christian writers. And fortunately, most of his works have been lost to us, so yes. we don't have to study them. <laughs> well, but I didn't expect to be 
Theotokos to come up. Well, same <laughs> Dr. thing. Gnoffle. Same thing with Thomas Thacker. Because the... Yeah, they couldn't get on short notice. Yes. So they had to have the Barbary they Ape instead. Have, they had to have that instead of the Barbary <laughs> Ape. Yeah, because they couldn't get the Thomas Decker play lined up. And it's like Thomas Decker was um, not quite as popular as Shakespeare at the time, but he was almost as prolific and we have almost nothing from him now. Yeah. Shakespeare, almost everything survived. Yeah, uh, lots of little touches like that. But I like that it goes from this, you know... Yes, it's basic level, but very competent discussion of, you know, this or that finer point of origin. Actually, I guess the most basic points of origin. But then they're, they're eating dinner, and um, Holden has put too much sauce on the duck for it to be considered courteous to the to his friend who cooked it. Holly <laughs> sputtered and looked up in outrage. What have you, why have you done that? Holden blinked innocently. Done what? Drown my meat so. Oh, I didn't think you would care, said Halden. After all, the duck, lacking life, has no material existence. According to your precious Nestorius, it is not there, and you are not eating it. <laughs> the duck was hardly a vehicle for the Holy Spirit, grumbled Otley. <laughs> Irrelevant, said Halden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is it's absolutely it's, 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 you know, the sort of the Gilmore Girls elevated reality, if you wish you could bicker, bicker at that level. Oh, but, yeah. but it is completely in character <laughs> for people who have been reading... Uh, <laughs> Who've been translating all day and are uh, and mm-hmm. have that sort of education? Well, it's like a lovers' quarrel in a way. It's like oh, yeah. you just can't let it go. Yeah, this is a conversation we had months ago, but something brings it up again. And, oh, wait, let's reignite <laughs> that fight. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah. Um, just I, I have I have tons of things highlighted in here. Um, a couple of things from okay, the chamber, the Chamberlain, though. Just like oh yeah, the Chamberlain is just. Yeah, mm-hmm. silly. I like I, I like him uh, talking about how he's kind of uh, his father had worked for the king before. And I just have the line, and to think my father used to complain about Henry the Eighth. Yeah, I just I couldn't imagine what that would be like. Oh, I know. Even James gets something like that. He's like, "Oh, poor dad," and you're yeah. like, "Oh my god, that's kind of an understatement." Yeah. Given what happened to King James's father, right? Oh yeah. Um, and then just on the same page there, I guess Vicky had gone missing and all he could think about is Victor. So he says, uh, the name, that name, I would not hear it, but I hear it everywhere. When you say devil's box, I hear Victor's Victor. When Cecil says parliament's opening, I hear Victor's Victor. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. But oh, uh, it really is. yeah, they, they just play that up. The, the king just doting on, on this really beautiful do. young man. This is well, looter here. A comely lad, the king says, stretching out each syllable suggestively. Fair of hair and with such splendidly plump and rosy cheeks. A model of health with a lively wit to him. Um, So is some of this... All right, so I know this is a a novel, not a novelization, but just a straight-up novel. Yeah. Is some of this made mildly less horrific um, by the fact that, you know, same way that... I forget... The name of the actress, Mary, what's her name? Portrayed Mary Peter Brian. No, I'm talking about uh, so Peter Pan, the TV musical version of Peter Pan. Oh, Peter Pan Martin. was a young yeah. boy yeah. portrayed by an adult woman yeah. in the, the 30s, Wizard of Oz. Dorothy Gale is supposed to be a young teen, but right. of course, Julie Garland is you know in her 20s. Is the fact that Maureen O'Brien, an adult... Does that somehow offset, do you think, in the mind of the it author, the, the, the predatory nature of, of, like the, of, the, of the different uh, you know, observations made about the plumpness of this boy's cheeks, etc., by the fact that it's about 
an actor who was an adult at the time instead of someone instead of an actual 12-year-old boy? Maybe. It would be interesting to see what Gareth Roberts would say about that. Well, he seems way too into it is what I'm saying. (laughs) Well, and I think it it kind of plays, they they do talk a little bit about how, like, how does he not see through the fact that this is a woman? Well, they're... Hmm. I, I, I don't remember where it's at, but I remember a character saying something yeah, like, how yeah. is he not... Well... It may have even been Hay that's like... Uh, there's something very interesting about that, um, because Maria O'Brien once told a story about her, she and her husband running into the producer at, um, her producer at some event years later. And she, the the producer scandalized both of them by saying that she wasn't exactly a natural companion because she couldn't scream and she hadn't got any tits. And you're like, oh my god. Basically, Maureen O'Brien is not very well-developed, even now. But yeah, that that probably is it. That Gareth Roberts is looking at Maureen O'Brien as she actually appears, and yeah, if she's dressed up as a boy, you could probably believe her at that time. I think Cultural she was like 22. Cues, haircut, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's possible. It's certainly, here's the thing, though. I think what he's going for more is the whole Shakespearean thing. Because we're not too far removed from a time when Twelfth Night would have been knowledgeable in everybody's head. Yeah. And also there's an episode of Blackadder that plays in on that same Mm. trope of how does the main character not know that this is a woman in men's clothing and yet he's Mm. attracted to her and he thinks he's gay. But it's played by a man so you have this additional layer of a man playing a woman disguised as a man but... uh, Exactly, but for modern audiences that doesn't translate as well. Yeah. Which is why Gareth Roberts doing Shakespeare Code is interesting, because he does have, you know, the female character played by a male actor in that one scene where they're doing... What is it? They're doing The Tempest? No, they're not doing The Tempest. No, they're not doing The Tempest, because um, Sycorax, when the Doctor says the name of that race, the Shakespeare says, oh, I like the name, the sound of that, I'm going to use that, and it's in The Tempest. But they're doing something or other. I can't remember what the hell it is now. Oh, here's something gross while you're thinking. Okay. There had to be a way to make the boy weaken. It had always been so easy before. He was the king and everybody else was a subject and had to obey him, whatever the command. Perhaps he pondered it was Victor's stubbornness and potentially suicidal r- refusal of, pri- of privilege that made this hunt the best yet. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading that scene and thinking, oh, James, you've gone from, oh, you rascally rogue you to, ooh, you big old fucking pederast you. Yeah. And it's really, and I think Roberts is again doing, dancing that fine line, and sometimes the dance doesn't go nearly as well because there is a darkness to this book, as you said. James would probably take off Hay's head, take off Victor's head, if... Either of them were to deny him outright. So, yeah, yeah, I could see that really, really, really being an issue. I just, I, this is, goes along with this. There's a, there's a scene where the doctor's meeting with, is it Catesby? Catesby. Um, and, and Catesby just says, I pray for a monarch that can ignore the pulsings of their groin. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Which, I mean, that goes for, for a lots of monarchs, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a very good line. Right. Yeah. And you would think that that would have been true of uh, Elizabeth, but no. Same thing. Well. Um, Something physical that's a little less about, you know, uh, um, panting after children. Probably not with these. <laughs> for, I, for I am out of 
out of joint. My innards are in a jitter. He's <laughs> his bulging tummy. It is as if I am with child until my eyes settle again on my precious peach. Damn it, I forgot that was what this screenshot was about. I'm sorry. That was also about the king thinker thinking about Victor Victoria here. And okay, that, that's fine. I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. That's my fine. eyes settle again on my precious peach. What you know? I, my frustration is, <laughs> as it's been with so many of these, that there is so much that I like. Why do we have to Sandusky it up? And and I say that because I, I, I bring the, the Sandusky reference because unlike the the, the violence they talk about in the Romans, you know, it, it, people aren't crucified by the state in modern Europe anymore. It's no. it's, it's, you know, it's it's historic violence. It, it doesn't happen anymore. Right. Adult setting up sort of basically child molestation factories is something that still happens. So I bring up yeah. that example because I was something to set up a camp for young boys yeah. from from difficult backgrounds and here we have a situation where the king you know arranges for a variety of young boys to be sort of brought by to entertain him and not just dancing so yeah. I, I know i'm the total killjoy of the group here but it, it hits me in a place in the stomach where it's not history yet yeah maybe in a hundred years it'll be funnier but there's so much that i enjoy it was funny about the book and then oh back to oh he's cute as a sugar plum yeah i get that but also and I'm wondering how much of it is us taking a new historicist approach to it and bringing our modern sensibilities to it when Roberts may indeed be trying to do it as no one else seems to have a problem with it. No one in his court seems to have a problem with it. And it's not just because James is king. I think, I hope that he is bringing up the horrificness of... Um, there, there's this gloss of humor, but he he mm -hmm. does make enough reference to the fact that no, no, the king totally wants to molest this what he thinks is a twelve or thirteen year old boy to the yeah. point where it I, it is meant to be unsettling. I think yeah. and hope. I hope. I believe so. I believe yeah. so. And that's, yeah, congratulations, it works. I'm yes. totally unsettling. Yeah, we may have to send a tweet to Gareth Roberts and say, <laughs> um, guy, can you uh, come talk to us? Oh, no, draw his attention to our existence. Speaking of guy, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. American troglodyte. Happen. Yeah. Speaking of Guy, Guy Fox. speaking of history, this book takes a very different approach to that. We're getting a Babs who's closer to the end of her journey than mm. she is to the beginning. So she's not doing the same thing she did in the Aztecs, which is deliberately trying to change history. No. But she is in a situation where... Probably uniquely among the Doctor's companions, she's the only one who can get herself out of the situation by saying, I know this about you, mm -hmm. I know this, sure. I know this, I know this, I know this, and this is the only way I'm getting out, by compla yeah. being completely honest. What do we think of that? I loved it. I, I thought a lot of the characterization was her of her made so much more sense than usual in terms of the experiences she's had. Her education and profession before all of this, she and Ian behaved in distinct ways, yeah. whereas some, sometimes they're kind of interchangeable as individuals. And I thought it made sense because it was more like something the doctor would do and she's learned how he's able to get through these situations. Yeah, Instead right. of just reacting in sort of a naive way over and over and over again, the way we've sometimes seen in the past. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it said a lot about Guy Fawkes as well. Yeah. Um, the fact that he was willing to listen to her hear her out and to agree that you're telling the truth. Mm -hmm. I have dealt with many people in my time and I know when people are lying and you're not lying. Yeah. yeah. 
that and the weird... In fact, I don't even know if it's historical revision, because I don't know much about the historical Guy Fawkes. No. I don't know if he really was that decent an individual. And I so, don't think that he killed him. <laughs> no, I don't think he killed him. Yeah, I don't think he ended up getting killed in uh, any sort of way at all. Um, and then to have his place taken by uh, Hay, who is apparently a devotee of something called the... What was the name of that group again? That the he the Behemoth. The, the Behemoth. Well, he, well, he, called, he called the Doctor a Behemoth. I he don't remember what the, the order was behemoth, called. called the Doctor a Behemoth, and it sounds the very much like... Behemoth. It sounds very much like... Um, it reminds me of the Leviath- Leviathan plotline from Dark Shadows, and I'm wondering if Roberts was familiar with that. Book of Job creatures, aren't they? Or one of them, I believe so. One of them, Genesis? I believe so. So it's like the secret society aimed at bringing down British society, which obviously that's not what was behind the gunpowder plot. So that's going to be a nice gloss. What did we think of that? I mean, has a companion killed someone before at this at this in this era? Oh yes, on screen. In the books, not quite so much. I can't remember. We talked about the Aztecs, and we said that on screen, he throws Ixta off the... Yeah, I don't I don't think we've had anyone, like, explicitly kill someone. It's always been something like that. Yeah, it's, it's very much accidental. like an accidental death, or they did it to themselves yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, precisely. Whereas this is probably the first case where... Um, I can't remember. Did Ian kill um, Alkir in the Crusades? I'm wanting to say yes because of what he did to Barbara with the beating. I don't recall. I don't, I think that was another situation where it was mm-hmm. like, yeah, it was like ambiguous. Yeah, I I do not recall. In fact, I think you're right. It was. It might have been off off screen. Yeah, that, that happened. But yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. This whole thing about the web of time. The web of time is a very specific reference because Hartnell's doctor is never going to say anything like that. That phrase is not going to come up until 1986. Hmm. But it's what's meant by fixed points in time, which the new series talks about. So the gunpowder plot is a fixed point in time. uh, But apparently they were always part of events in this and were always meant to be helping it along. Yeah. I assume. Well, we've had a couple of other instances like that, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like... Did things happen because the Doctor and the Companions come and help them happen? Or were they going to end up that way anyway? Well, the Mythmakers ends up being that, right? Yeah. Because the Trojan War ends up ending the way it does, specifically because the Doctor remembers reading about it. Right. <laughs> so there's a cyclical... So he's involved in his own time loop. Exactly. Exactly. So. He is part of events. Yeah. Here, at least, it feels very much like uh, the Doctor has a little bit more of... The heroic going on. I love his interactions with Cecil, for instance, and the fact that Cecil hates him, cannot yes. stand yeah. him, and tells him he should never return to Britain lest he lose his head. Yeah. But is very, well, if not happy, at least pleased that he's there to fix all this mess that uh, Cecil's created by kind of helping the plot along. I'm sure that's not historical either. No, but I I feel like their their relationship is a little contentious because of that. Yeah. Because the the doctor can pretty much ruin him mm-hmm. if he wanted to. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know if anyone would believe the doctor over the 
the hand of the king. Yeah, but, but it's an interesting form of detente. It's yeah. kind of like the same thing with the Crusaders and that one night that he had that interaction with. And right. it's like, I can... Yeah. There's some quality bickering in there as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole the whole book is full of quality bickering. We haven't even talked about the cobblers. Not really, the no. cobblers are... <laughs> the fact that... The gentle craft. <laughs> oh, yes. And the fact that Ian thinks that Barbara is calling them a bad name. And then he realizes, oh, you mean literal cobblers. It's like, yes, yes, I'm not insulting them. It's like, no, they make shoes. Like, exactly. That's what they are. <laughs> oh, God. Well, um, what else? Is there anything else that we can think of? Okay, Ian starts by uh, describing... Um... Oh, we should maybe just get back in the TARDIS and have another, with it, another pull of the handle of the old fruit machine there. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that the TARDIS is pleased to see Barbara. There's yes, There's that moment yes. where she's like, oh, I just had a feeling that the TARDIS is pleased to see me. That's very much uh, uh, the Virgin books. The Virgin books always characterize the TARDIS as a much more alive entity than the original series ever did. And the new series, of course... I was going to say, the new one seems to yeah, continue they that. They canonized it. Yeah, we yeah. know that the TARDIS is sentient and that it's aware. Or semi-sentient, anyway. Um, the discussion of the religious and political situation, I thought, was nicely scaled in that the, the, broader, the broader context is described Pretty, pretty succinctly and yeah. accurately, mm -hmm. um, because you know, of course, the modern impulse to say, "Oh, why is everyone just you know quibbling about religion? Can't we all just get along?" And it actually pretty succinctly laid down: these are the tensions. Mm -hmm. People are not just being small and petty. There are these bigger national connections to these different religious positions that I thought was yeah. it, it actually is hard to put in a succinct way that isn't. This doesn't have sort of a modern snootiness of why do people used to be so stupid? Why aren't yeah. they wise as we are now? Yeah, I appreciate that about this book, that Roberts actually does at one point give us something of a canned history lesson, as if knowing that the colonials are going to be reading <laughs> this at some point, and we're not, we don't have it all off the top of our heads like Ian and Barbara do. No. I mean, even, even Ian knows the details of the plot. So even he's got them to hand. It's Vicky who's completely out of joint. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it really handles that well. And, in fact, this is kind of a, um, since we're going to be reading The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve at some point quite soon, we're going to be getting those Protestant versus Catholic tensions again, but via France. And that's going to be fascinating. Yeah. There's a new exhibit at the Newberry Library called Print and Religious Change 1452, I think, 1700. Anyway, it's a Newberry Library, so it's a display of books. Um, so you, you really should take the tour. Actually, the online version of the exhibit is terrific. Um, oh, okay. But uh, during the tour, the, uh, the I think it was the curator who was the guy. They only did about three tours total, and they have... A 1611 King James, I think it's a 1611 Ooh, King James version, nice. next to a Geneva Bible. Ah. And, of course, he asked, right, which one do you think was commissioned by a king? And, of course, the King James is a much larger format and ornate, um, much more expensive uh, gilt book. 
Um, but he said part of the reason that King James wanted this uh, wanted this translation was because of his hatred of that one. And he points to the Geneva Bible. Yeah. And he asked the people in attendance who were, you know, smarter than average crowd because there are people who showed up at Saturday morning for the Newberry Library Religious Change um, exhibit <laughs> tour. And there's dead silence. Oh. What do you think he didn't like about it? And someone finally says, the font. <laughs> it's really small. He was mad because he couldn't read it. And I will say that the side notes were unbelievably tiny. What would yes. be, in, in modern terms, six-point font. Yeah, true. <laughs> and then the guy laughed. The guy laughed and said, uh, no, I think he was probably okay with the font. That's something else. We're talking about the notes. It is the notes, but not that he's angry that they're too tiny to read, but because the notes say it's okay to kill an unjust ruler, and he didn't like that. But yes. this character, this humorous characterization of King James, I could definitely get angry about a font that he didn't like. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Worked in context. Oh, and speaking of which, that, that uh, what you just said reminds me of one of my favorite line exchanges in the book when he goes to see the TARDIS and he crosses himself and they all run away and he's like, oh, for heaven's sake, you'd think they hadn't been educated. They haven't been educated. Oops. I love that. I absolutely do. Um, other great lines or other well, things just, you mentioned? Or? Bringing up that scene, I, I enjoyed visualizing uh, Barbara and Vicky and the doctor doing the exorcism. <laughs> just like yeah. just like vamping an exorcism. Know no, it's for, all phonetic. Right. Just <laughs> like, some water. waiting for Ian to show up. Like, how long can we get away with this? It's essentially a phonetic language. <laughs> yeah. Um, making well, fun of them because they can't figure out the note at the end for the same reason. Right. It's like, oh, for heaven's sake. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was something that once they once they uh, revealed that, I was like, how is oh, that? Yeah. Because, but, yeah. But I don't read really. I read in English, which is very phonetic. <laughs> so, it's not supposed to be easy to get. Yeah. No, no. That's the point. And for that matter, if you're thinking about the way things were spelled in the 17th century as opposed to now. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it would only work with the fluid British accent. concept of spelling. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there's that. More <laughs> um, translator filler quotes. Uh, Heldon saying to Odie, I never knew a fellow at any college that could resist a tuffle over the hypostasis. <laughs> Odie whispered back, prevarication, the curse of the modern age, the triumph of evangelical passions over rational analyses. All this praying, see where it ends. <laughs> he nodded to the doctor who was poring over the pages produced lately, nodding and pointing out passages to his ward. Such enthusiasm is unseemly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, and other good lines. Uh, the doctor at one point says, self-deception is a dangerous quality, and I would advise ridding your personality of it, as I have done. Ah. It's like, oh, doctor. But doesn't he <laughs> later say that he got in, that he found the tunnel uh, through, um, was it hard work and good character? Yes. With intelligence and good character? Exactly. Oh, here it was. Yes. Luck, the doctor tugged absently at his quote. It was hardly luck that got me into that tunnel, now was it? I should say it was intelligence and strength of character. <laughs> and Ian, even earlier in the book, said something along the lines of, well, the doctor's not exactly a paragon of character, is he? <laughs> um, the the two cobblers, Hodge and Furking, uh, just 
it's it's right at the end of the book when they're kind of helping to come save the day. Yes. And they're talking about Ralph Hodge night. Yes. The imagining of yes. Hodge Day. They're yeah, imagining Hodge his own yes. celebrations in the future to to commemorate. Tables this. of pies along the river. Right. Oh, Just so so ridiculous. <laughs> I really enjoyed the Chamberlain's tour of the um supposed coal storage unit and the conspirators explain that this is their man cave. Right. What are all those barrels over there? It's a selection of wine. Right. Is that a body? He just had too much to drink. We're just just playing poker down here. It's it's all right. Oh my God. Absolutely hilarious. It's like Ocean's Eleven or something. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) And uh, they're describing to Ian how he's a... probably going to die, except your death will be a sudden and merciful one. You shall not feel the prick of rising flames. It shall be over in a flash for you. You will hear the fizzing of the wood for a quarter of an hour, and you will get the great rush of heat from the barrels as they go, and then you shall be in hell with your masters. Which for some reason reminded me of the way that Neil deGrasse Tyson describes what it would be like to die in a black hole. He's very enthusiastic about it. Exactly. I remember that description now. Oh, and the whole thing of, um... God. The whole thing when Vicky thinks that the doctor is going to be mad at her and she says she was so used to being decried for her uselessness by him that she felt strangely honored. Yeah. <laughs> what? Um, I, have a, I have a line right here at the end, just when, I guess, uh, Cecil and the doctor are kind of wrapping things up. Um, mm-hmm. And Cecil just says, I endeavored to kill you. You repaid me by saving my life. Why? Why lift a finger to help me? Because, my good fellow, I am not a politician. Unlike you, my concern is not winning. I just want the best possible results. Mm-hmm. I was like, hmm, if only more people felt that way. Yeah, that's for true. That's for true. All right. Other good lines? Anything else that st- stood out to you? Good? Bad? Oh, uh, just just going going back to James and, and the Victor uh, story bit uh just ah at last my peach he gave with a little wave only using his fingertips i just <laughs> pictured king james just like it's exactly what nero does on screen to yeah. uh, barbara in fact just like a little cutesy like yeah creepy like, yeah. Just yeah. it's like oof because you could certainly see that happening yeah i also found there's so much lamp lampshade hanging in this book that Roberts uses the chapter covering all those puns about the plot at the beginnings yeah. of uh, mm-hmm. chapters. The chapter called Covering the Cracks is the one in which he talks about how hate changes so quickly. <laughs> so it's like, uh, yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. That's really lovely. Anything else? It has a pretty good easily visualized map because at the end of any sort of plot like this it involves a lot of people rushing around and on foot it's very easy to mix up who's going where with whom towards what and you did a good job of managing i think our how we imagine the physical the geography oh, of yeah. the space yeah absolutely absolutely and that's something that's sometimes lacking in these books Always flacking on Facebook, come to think of it. Uh, just uh, something else I have highlighted going, uh, talking about the Chamberlain. One of the times he's going to visit the King's Chambers, he knocks on the guard, has this look on his face, and it's described <laughs> as Monarch Moody, proceed with care. Yes. Right. <laughs> so it's like an unspoken kind of, you might not want to go in there, but I'm not going to stop. Yeah, it's a code that they've yes. handed down for generations. Like, Probably still happens. As a of, yes, of course. 
As huh. he spoke, he pointed, pointed to various parts of Vicky's body. He shall make the king a friend sweet as a sugar-candied fig. Oh That's what I was looking for before oh <laughs> when, he, when Vicky's at the tailor. <laughs> and then turns out, yes, that Firkin and Hodge are going to make the shoes. That's the mm-hmm. gentle craft. <laughs> yes, you have to wonder what happened to those uh, plastic slippers, because <laughs> they're a hell of an anachronism if nobody retrieved them. They sort of accept them like, oh, I got the one I was on pilgrimage. Like, oh, interesting foreign shoes. Right. Well, I guess we'll learn about those soon enough. <laughs> They're designers. They don't suspect them to be witchcraft. I, I expected them to look a bit like Crocs. That's exactly what I was picturing. <laughs> with some kind, of just like, yeah, well, there's plastic. A- a modern sort of concept that people sort of stayed in one place for thousands of years at a time until around, you know, 1850. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's not accurate as people are always moving around. I thought this gave a nice sense of the fact that London was already cosmopolitan yeah. in this year. And there are people in coming and going from all over the known world. And that they're used to seeing strange materials they've yeah. never seen before and unusual accents they don't recognize. And it, it's not a homogenous yeah. um, city. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just one last thing mm-hmm. um, that I have highlighted. Uh, James and Cecil were, he was talking to someone about Cecil and he says, um, then have Salisbury sent in. Honestly, I'm beginning to regret bestowing that title. The little chap now sees himself as a mighty cathedral. <laughs> I should have made him Redding or something. <laughs> so just, that, that I didn't even catch that. Yeah, it's like, oh, ha, uh-huh. ha, ha. Oh, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It always shocked him to see how withered and jaded it had become. Um, sorry, uh, Heldon had lived with that face for as long as he could recall. It always shocked him to see how withered and jaded it had become. <laughs> Naturally, this was not out of any concern for Otley, who was a specious idiot, but because it reminded him that he was seven years older and thus seven years more stupid, stooped and decrepit. <laughs> well, you had it right the first time. <laughs> Trouble so with the witty Tertullian, I see, Otley observed. His contentions are too heavy and verbose, even for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, let's go to Goodreads. Yeah, yeah, because the the evening is wearing on, and it is, and there's lots of little fine things to talk about. Yes, but overall, have you heard the chimes at midnight? Of course, we have. It's not midnight yet, of course. No. As we always do, let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers. Then follow up with our own re- ratings. I know, uh, can't do this voice and that. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment somewhere, and you may just get your review read out loud here. Average rating for this story, uh, for this book rather, out of five stars, is 3.72, which is actually a little lower than I was expecting. Here's some sample reviews. Andy Simmons gives it four stars and says this is a really good book. I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but suffice to say the Doctor, Barbara, Ian, and Vicky arrive just prior to the opening of Parliament on the 5th of November as usual. They all get embroiled in the plots and machinations of those intending to bring about the gunpowder plot. The writing is very good, the characters are excellent, and the plot is deserving a William Hartnell-era story, which is the author's intention. Although I love the whole Doctor Who genre, it is nice to have a purely historical adventure without alien interference. It does irk me a little, 
that when the Doctor visits a historical period, aliens always just happen to be planning some devious scheme. In Plotters, the antagonist is excellently portrayed, although it must be mentioned there's an excellent scene where the Doctor turns the tables on him. Haven't read any of Gareth Roberts' Doctor Who stories before this one, but uh, before, but this one's very enjoyable. I look forward to his others, etc., etc. David Lawton, on the other hand, gives it only three stars and says other reviewers seem to be wowed by this novel to a degree that baffles me. While the novel is entertaining and amusing, it is by no means brilliant. Gareth Roberts pretty much admits in his author's note that he is doing to late Renaissance England what the Romans had done to Nero's Rome. The TARDIS crew land they know not where. The Doctor splits from Ian and Barbara in a huff so that he can take Vicky off on his own little adventure. The Doctor and Vicky get caught up in court shenanigans while Ian and Barbara get swiftly plunged into danger. The specific historical event at the heart of all this is the gunpowder plot. Of course, with the Doctor and crew around, events do not happen quite as history writes them. There's much fun to be had with a horny king, very similar to the horny Nero of the Romans. In this case, however, we get a Shakespearean twist when Vicky must pretend to be a boy, and the king gets the hots for her, thinking she's a boy. There is also an over-the-top complications of the plot involving a master spy from a religious cult. The novel is clever, but not deep. Well, goodness. So, what did we think? Um, Allison, we're going to go with you first. Out of five stars, what would you do? Uh, I actually like I like Layton's review of it there. I agree with many of his points. It's... Um, it's a definitely more entertaining than average one. Uh, very enjoyable banter. Um, you know, enough enough actual historic context to make the sort of flights of fancy and conspiracy that he goes off on entertaining. Maybe, maybe to keep beating the same drum again. Maybe his repeated pointing out of King's lust for this uh, supposed young boy is an expansion on Barbara's thesis of the fact that all the threads of our civilization are here. There are bad things as well. And uh, holy shit, she doesn't realize how bad it's going to be. And sort of giving us that realization of, yay, they're zipping around having fun adventures and knocking people in the head with rocks and meeting exciting people. Oh, and there's this old man following around yeah. Vicky, hoping to uh, to molest a young boy. That maybe it does hang together in in that way. I'd say, oh gosh, let me go with uh, two point five. Hmm. Okay, all right, that works, Dalton. Uh, I'm going to go with a four. Okay, four stars. Hmm. Um, Dalton's a nice one. I'm I'm easy to please. I. I don't know. It was fun. There was some historical context that was interesting to see. I kind of liked how, um, as opposed to say the myth, the myth makers where history ended up actually being what it was Mm -hmm. in this one, Guy Fawkes dies and another character takes his place in history, but it's Guy Fawkes because that's who he is. That's who they say he is. So he is that person. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting turn on this idea of like fixed points in, in time and space yeah. and how it's like, you know, what we think is true isn't always 100% true. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, I just, I really enjoyed reading it. I liked a lot of the characters, a lot of the like duos that we had going on. There was a lot of mm-hmm. uh, fun play between the characters, a lot of, um, so, some of the things that we've had in other books where it just 
goes back and forth between the two sides. This one <laughs> carried it out in, in a little better way. Um, yeah. I had, I had fun with it, though. I'm looking forward to going and watching Beef for Vendetta now. <laughs> Which so. absolutely has nothing to do with this nope. at all. Nope. <laughs> but that's fine. Um, I appreciate this book so much more than I did the first time I read it, which would have been in the mid-90s when it first came out. Mainly because um, we already know about my horrible, horrible hatred of historical stories. And this is a pretty pure historical, except for the fact that it's brilliant. And I think coming off of the Mythmakers so soon, so recently, and seeing just what an homage to Cotton this is, yeah. and to that whole era of stories and the Dennis Spooner era of um, story editing. Yeah, I could see this very easily fitting between the Space Museum, which would have just been awful, of course, and the Chase, which was a different form of awful, and this being a nice little bit of a treat. Give, saying that, of course, I, I get Allison's point about the, uh, there's a little little too much boy lust in it it's a little worrisome um that that is something that he's dancing the line on and he doesn't quite get it quite it's always kind of uncomfortable yeah and part of me wonders whether or not that's intentional or not because there's a lot here that's very uncomfortable the bear baiting scene for instance is just incredibly difficult incredibly difficult to get through and yet this is something they would have taken as a given in James's time. So, what would I give this out of five? A four. Definitely not my favorite Virgin Missing Adventure because that's either going to be Cold Fusion by Lance Parkin or it's going to be the other big First Doctor book, which is Venusian Lullaby, which is referenced in this one. And it's strictly a First Doctor, Ian and Barbara book. So, right after Susan leaves, in fact. So, if ever you want to see Ian and Barbara interacting with the Doctor without... Without someone Vicky, else. Yeah. That is a... It's a brilliant book. Absolutely brilliant. And at some point, we may even do it as another special. You never know. Maybe before the end of the Hartnell era? Maybe not. Who can say? <laughs> yes. It'll be our treat to you, dear listeners. Well, thanks, guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. In about two weeks, our Patreons, I think we call them that now, will have access to our first patrons-only special, a discussion of the two chapters that comprise the entirety of the novelization of the one-part episode, Mission to the Unknown. The rest of you freeloaders, of course, can join us around the 26th or the 27th, when we'll be releasing our live recorded episode discussing the entirety of John Peel's novelization of the Daleks Master Plan. If you're in the Chicago area, you can join us live, because Allison and me and Trey Corte will all be there on that Saturday between 2.30 and 3.30 p.m. Uh, I think we're doing a book giveaway. It may be a Target book. God, uh, if, it's a, if it is, I expect to hear you complaining we're, about we're gonna it. We're going to be pelted by Target books instead we of rotten fruit. We will. It's going to be... But it'll rotten be, Target books. Rotten Target books. It, well, yeah, but there are, there are only so many copies of the Space Museum around. Ha <laughs> ha! 
<laughs> you saw what I did there. Yeah. In the meantime, yes, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. You can visit our still pristine subreddit. Yeah, I'm not even going to It's a bother. fixed point in time, Tony. It's it really okay. is. It cannot be changed. It's like Jack Harkness, except he gets touched every once in a while. Well, yeah. The Reddit doesn't. <laughs> um, of course, you know where to find us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play Store. I haven't been mentioning that lately, but we are on Google Play Store now, which is lovely. For all of you Android users. For all you pathetic Android users, of which one I am. I was going to say. I'm an American yeah. and an Android <laughs> exactly. user. I barely have the power Exactly. If all else fails, you email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Happy Halloween. And enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.